Welcome to the Business Psychology Podcast, where we'll be discussing how businesses can use psychology to better understand human behavior. I'm Rebecca Longman. And I'm Jessica Welch, talking to you from Innovation Bubble, a global consultancy. In each episode, we'll be discussing how psychology applies to current topics in the world of work. Sometimes we'll bring relevant guests, and other times it will just be the two of us. We hope you enjoy the Business Psychology Podcast. On today's show, I have Katerina Witkins with me as a co-host instead of Rebecca. And we've got Dr. Tomas Chamuro Premuzic as our guest today. Super excited for that. For those who don't know him, Tomas is an organizational psychologist. He's an author of 10 books and he's an entrepreneur. He uses science and tech to help organizations predict human performance. His commercial work focuses on the creation of science-based tools that improve organizations' ability to predict performance and people's ability to understand themselves. He's currently the chief talent scientist at Manpower Group, co-founder of Deeper Signals and Meta Profiling, and a professor of business psychology at University College London and Columbia University. Okay, great. So today... We have Dr. Tomas Chamoro Premuzic on our show. We are very excited to have you here. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, Thank you for having me. Yes, also excited to be here. Hi. Hi. It would be great to hear you tell us your story. So just tell us a little bit about your journey of ending up where you are right now. What made you decide to become a business psychologist in the first place? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, first of all, it has been a pretty serendipitous journey. Not much was planned, and mostly one thing led to the next. I started my career in philosophy and then as a clinical psychologist, and my first few years of post-university kind of a work experience were in the clinical field. So I was mostly doing psychotherapy with people who were either anxious, depressed, or in some cases, psychotic. And uh, I guess at that stage, I realized that I was more interested in the applied side of things. And uh, I decided to retrain. So I left Argentina where I grew up to go to the UK. And um, I never really thought that I would stay in academia, but I got very fascinated by this field of organizational psychology and the ability to either bring the science of people to HR and the world of talent on the one hand, and then consumer behavior on the other hand. And basically that has been most of my focus over the past 20 years or so. So since I started working on my PhD, I tried very much, I guess that there's one common thread or consistent theme is my obsession for bridging the gap between, you know, the science and theory of psychology in the world of academia and its application to the real world. So anything that would benefit from an understanding of people in the real world of either work or consumerism or relationships. I mean, if there is an opportunity to apply the science of psychology to solving real world problems, then you've got my attention and I'm very interested. And that's about it, basically. And, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating world. And I consider myself lucky to be working on something that I'm very passionate for. We couldn't agree more, I think. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what do you think is, uh, in a few sentences, the, the key benefit of applied psychology in the business world? What, what would you say from your experience and so many areas, what you see is the benefit of it? Yeah, so if I had to pick one, it would be really to solve what I consider a big, big 
problem, almost a crisis that uh, underpins most of the issues, challenges that organizations face today, which is, I call it the crisis of understanding. You know, I think we're living in a world where despite a well-established and mature science and vast scientific body of evidence, still today, most organizations don't understand their people and most people don't understand themselves. And the psychology is the key science or discipline that can boost understanding. So I work a lot in the assessment space, but in general, there are so many methods and theories that psychology provides to boost understanding. So if we can help organizations understand their people, and if we can help people understand themselves, the world of work will be better off. Yeah, totally. And uh, how would you see the benefit in the consumer space so we are always trying to bridge the two kind of worlds and the consumer experience and the employee experience and what have you seen or from your work and from your experience what the benefits are to bring psychology in the consumer space yeah you know so we, this is a, a really interesting point in time i think because if you think about most of the innovations that have occurred in the last 20 years or so were, of course, part of the digital revolution and the digital age. But if you look more specifically, most of the innovations, whether it's Uber, Facebook, Tinder, Expedia, I mean, you name it, Spotify, Netflix, most of those innovations are grounded or founded on a key psychological principle, which is matchmaking. And matchmaking is about personalizing things and using technology and data, but mostly science, to for the first time be able to have a one-to-one -one personalized relationship with consumers. And so consumers know this and, you know, that we are already living at a point in history where there's a whole generation that has grown up with this ability to have the world on their fingertips and get what they want, even if it's not what they need, straight away. So you can swipe right or left if you see a romantic partner, a potential partner, you can order food, you can order a car, you can book and spend as much money as possible in a minute on Amazon and so forth. But I think this frontier and what I'm really interested in is to go beyond matchmaking, prediction and matching people to products to actually boost understanding there as well. What if I could interpret or mine all the data that you have given away for all these free apps and tell you something about yourself that enhances your self-awareness? What if you could actually learn about yourself simply by translating all your footprint and your archival kind of passage consumer history into a profile that tells you, you know what, you're actually quite adventurous. You know what, you're actually quite stingy. You know what, mm. you're actually mm. quite greedy. And here's why, you know, and I think historically, if you think about the beginnings of psychographic segmentation in uh, marketing, we used to do this through focus groups. We invite people, chat to them, and then we have personas, right? Now it's that on steroids, but you can do it at a personalized level. And I think what's new is the potential to give people feedback that actually helps them understand themselves and also helps them behave in better ways. So for example, if 
your driving data suggests that you're a reckless driver, maybe it should be more expensive to insure you. But maybe we should also tell you, hey, you know, you are actually behaving in a reckless way and so forth. So I think, again, and that's where I see synergies. And uh, I think that's where the methods and the science are equally applicable to the world of uh, HR and the world of marketing. Just a question on that. Do you think consumers want to hear that? I think so. I think, first of all, you know, let's agree that uh, most people are fairly narcissistic. So if you are telling them something about themselves, you know, they probably are interested. This is why, and it's less common now, but you remember the kind of explosion of BuzzFeed quizzes of what type of dog breed should mm. you be or mm. what? 17th century philosopher would you have been the only reason why people do it okay partly they're bored but partly they want to hear about themselves so that's why things like the mice breaks and you know i'm an intj or i'm a scorpio or libra are so catchy but Mm. equally i think if you're giving them valuable and accurate information about themselves and that helps them make better decisions in life I think there is a clear benefit, you know, and right now, at least in the world of marketing, they're not getting that. I mean, they can see that because they try to book a holiday, they're now bombarded with the same ad on uh, about hotels in Greece, whatever. But that doesn't tell them anything about where they might want to be on vacations or what that says about themselves. Yeah, totally. Have you come across any company who goes into this direction of bringing back this kind of self-understanding or self-awareness benefit or not yet? Is that kind of your mission in the consumer space? I think it's more a desire, a utopian kind of view of where the field should go. Even think about not giving people understanding, but gaining a deeper understanding of consumers We're not quite there yet because the whole field, if you think about programmatic marketing or digital marketing, is obsessed with prediction and with Mm. matchmaking and personalizing things. But for example, you know, if you take Amazon or Netflix, there's nothing there that tells the data scientists that you are a sensible person or that you are a sensitive person or that you are a nostalgic individual. It's more they could get that data, but they still haven't embraced the potential value of theory. It's all about, you know, if you do this, then we'll show you that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Do you actually think that organizations or companies will embrace this kind of approach or will they fear that, well, actually, if we give this data back about our consumers, then they might, you know, work on themselves and and stop engaging with us and we might potentially lose them? Or do you think actually by giving this kind of feedback and a win-win situation, consumers will stay with them and appreciate it? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, from an ethical perspective, I think the model makes total sense, you know. Mm. In Europe, things like GDPR are, I think, a first step towards empowering consumers with more freedom, choice, and knowledge as well, or at least awareness. But I think a next step would be that, to democratize Mm. feedback that comes from that and empower understanding. And look, at the end of the day, the success or potential success of a business shouldn't be based on its ability to conceal information from others or Mm. manipulate others. 
it could work in a more transparent way, you know? Even if yeah. you think of shock or horror stories like Cambridge Analytica, mm. uh, which is a sad way to demonstrate that this works, right? The kind of yeah. based on what people do. Potentially, uh, you could still influence voters by telling them, look, we are targeting you because based on your Facebook preferences, you're neither mm -hmm. very liberal nor very conservative. So that suggests to us that you are a psychological swing voter. Therefore, uh, here's some information on the candidate that we are supporting, Trump or Hillary. You know, we are not uh, legitimizing or defending the broadcasting of fake news, false information. That's something else. But imagine yeah. that the people that were targeted could have been told why they were targeted. And in principle, that wouldn't have made the campaign less effective. Not I just wonder, there's quite a lot of self-awareness that would be needed for people to take information like that on board. And I think one of the things you've, you've discussed in, in your latest book as well is the lack of self-awareness in leaders in particular in your book. But I, I just wonder, are we overestimating the level of self-awareness that people have or that they even want to have? Yeah, so, you know, and here I would, I would kind of maybe draw a distinction between sort of superficial or transactional or maybe interpersonal level of self-awareness that I think uh, would be enough to improve or enhance in the workplace, which is when it comes to leadership, and this is what I talk about in my last book, if leaders could understand how they impact others and how they're seen by others, for sure, they would be more effective, they would behave in better ways, and they would actually be able to improve and develop further. Because if you have a leader who is fundamentally deceived about their talents and who thinks they are better than they actually are, or that they're amazing when in fact they are antagonizing, uh, alienating, or disengaging their staff, it's very hard to work with them. And then a second deeper level, which is maybe a more existential philosophical level of self-awareness, which is relevant vis-a-vis uh, -vis our discussion uh, of marketing and consumerism. Like It is possible that if we develop our consciousness and our self-awareness to the point that we realize that all these material things are not that necessary and that we're you know, exposed to constant influence and persuasion by marketing ads that we don't need, that is possibly counterproductive for you know, the economy and the market. But uh, still, right, somebody needs to ensure that uh, people don't overdo it and that actually uh, they maintain a certain level of not just self-control, but that, for example, you know, their only focus in life isn't uh, materialism or wealth, right? So, it, or at least there should be an opportunity for people to develop that side of themselves, you know? So that's kind of existential. It's almost like, talking about this old idea of self-actualizing, you know, so if, mm -hmm. if you have relationships, you have health, you have a career, you have a set, do you really need to be hooked on all these apps and buying all these things? Or is there something more productive and positive that you could be doing with your time, which, by the way, is more likely to contribute to society as well? Yeah, totally. I, I couldn't agree more. Do, do you think talking about self-awareness and, and leaders and that if they become more self-aware and actually hear from their people how they are actually perceived and do from your experience what are the best approaches methods tools 
that leaders in organizations can use and practice so they get to this point and become, you know, more, I don't know if competent is the right word, but, you know, mm -hmm. better leaders, basically. The most common tool would be something along the lines of a 360 survey. So multi-source feedback survey, you know, a short questionnaire that leaders can give to um, their peers, their reports, their colleagues, their bosses, their bosses' bosses to get a kind of um, anonymous um, feedback from everyone on how they're performing, right? So imagine mm -hmm. that it's like crowdsourcing a leader's reputation. So if we accept the basic premise that you are what you typically do and that others are better able to observe what you do than yourself because you are kind of mostly biased and interpret your own actions in a wishful thinking kind of way, collect data on how other people are seeing you. If you want a simpler version of that, it would actually be asking your employees, so just the people who report to you, how they see, mm -hmm. because they are, after six or seven weeks on the job, they can see basically what your pros and cons are. And uh, if you do it in an anonymous way, they probably report on that. Of course, in an ideal world, you wouldn't need any kind of assessment or any kind of tool because part of being a leader would include the ability to solicit feedback from others and critical feedback that helps you get better. So if you're a good leader or a talented, competent leader, by definition, you will be able to create a culture or climate where people feel the psychological safety that enables them to say, you know what, boss, uh, I don't agree with how you did this, or I'm not quite sure this is the right strategy, or why are we actually doing this? Could you be wrong? And, you know, this doesn't happen very often. Mm. Uh, leaders still, in most cultures, see the boss as an intimidated, intimidating figure. And even when leaders have open dialogue with others, they are pre-wired to solicit positive feedback, not negative feedback, you know? So, yeah. hey team, can you tell me that I'm great? Because I think that, then I would love to hear you say that. And then yeah. you know, maybe the team, yeah, all they learn is the art of providing fake compliments, but that's not quite the <laughs> yeah. No. Well, and then the, I mean, and then the other question, I guess, would be, if we do get or if leaders do get this kind of more honest, constructive feedback, then if at the moment, as you say in your book, we have a lot of narcissistic, maybe even psychopathic leaders and organizations, I'm actually wondering how well do they take this feedback on board or if they just ignore it, even if it was in place. But I think it is about the accountability then that that leaders get assessed, you know, rigorously as well. And, and based on their performance, they either stay or can get kicked out as well <laughs> and i think you know the, the, this is why probably the most pervasive toxic element that accounts for most leadership problems is this phenomenon of male overconfidence the fact that we are seduced by it we reward it we reinforce it and it's mm. almost their fault. You know, if you have somebody who is naturally overconfident and unaware of their limitations or unjustifiably pleased with themselves, mm. and they come and get interviewed, and instead of the interviewer saying, my God, this person is so arrogant, 
because they're clearly diluted, which would require the interviews to actually understand how much the person knows and distinguish between competence and confidence. Instead of doing that, people go like, wow, here's a really charismatic and funny guy. They would fit right in. Don't expect that person to suddenly become humble, self-critical, or modest. They're just going to keep acting in this way, and that's going to be reinforced until it's too late to fix this issue or we are punished for the mistakes that these individuals make. Mm -hmm. So I think it may also be worth mentioning for those who may not know that the book we are currently discussing is your latest one called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? And for those who may not have read it or even heard of it, could you talk a little bit about it? Maybe what led you to writing this book and maybe a summary of it? Yeah, sure. So the book is based on an article I wrote for Harvard Business Review six years ago or so, which originally tried to provide an alternative interpretation for the, you know, unequal distribution of gender in leadership to what Sheryl Sandberg had uh, postulated with her lean in, you know, now famous lean in paradigm almost. So Cheryl basically said, look, women, if you want to be represented in the leadership ranks and uh, become leaders as frequently as males do, you have to go for it, show assertiveness, lean in, put yourself forward for things, etc. So basically, she fundamentally said the psychological reason for the lack of female leaders is that they're just not as confident. And my view was that this was a mistake. You know, first, there is no clear evidence today in the developed world and increasingly in the developing world that women suffer from underconfidence or that they're not assertive or interested in leadership, which is extraordinary if you think that they still don't have the same opportunities. So normally they should be, but they're not. Secondly, there has never been a strong connection between wanting to do something and being good at something. And this applies for both men and women. Most of the people who think they're very good at something are not. And many people who are actually very self-critical, as the Dunning-Kruger effect shows, are very competent at things. And third, and most importantly, you know, I kind of reason that many of the problems that we currently have with our leaders are actually caused by us betting on people who lean in or express assertiveness when they don't have the talents to back it up. So in essence, what the article and now the books argue is, is that instead of blaming women for not being confident, which is not actually true, how about we stop falling for people, usually men, who are more confident than they should be? And we focus our leadership assessment and leadership selection processes on competence rather than confidence. And, yeah, and I think it's, it's and, and I, and I want to know, where do you think that comes from, from the very beginning? Why do you think we are so attracted to confidence and, and charisma? Where do you think that attraction comes from? Mm -hmm. I think it's probably something to do with the evolutionary explanation of this. I think, you know, we evolved now outdated leadership archetypes and stereotypes uh, that were effective and valid 
200,000 years ago or 2 million years ago when the world was much simpler, when we lived all of our life with 10 or 50 people and we were actually able to assess others very well. Because imagine if you're hanging out with the same 5 or 10 people all your life, you probably know them quite well. It's very hard for them to fool you. Somebody can't pretend to be a master of something that they're not. And actually during those times, Leadership talent was mostly based on physical strength, dexterity, speed, courage. So actually, the world was really simple. You could look at someone and say, yeah, you know what? We're going to follow this person, male or female, because we are safer in doing that. Fast forward 200,000 years or 2 million years, and we're in an age of high complexity when leadership has to do with things like critical thinking, handling complexity, learning fast, having empathy, EQ. And these things are not just hard to observe directly, they're very easy to fake. And one of the fascinating evolutionary paradoxes that explains the prevalence of overconfidence is that you're much better able to fake competence if you have fooled yourself in the first place. So ironically, if I'm deceived about my own talents, I'm more likely to be seen as talented by others. It should be the other way around. And so, you know, so in essence, the high complexity age in which we live in requires science, data, expertise, you know, it takes competence to spot incompetence. And most people, you know, they live in a time where they are time deprived and they don't have time to actually scrutinize candidates. Think about political elections. Most people vote not just for Brexit or their political parties or their presidents, but any kind of democratic election. It's based on insufficient information. It's based on ideology or preference or you know what let's just base it on our gut feeling i'm gonna spend five or ten minutes watching this presidential debate and i go oh i quite like this guy he's funny yeah i'm gonna <laughs> because imagine the alternative is to almost have to do a phd in politics and scrutinize what people really mean what their economic competence are who the team would be and unfortunately that surpasses the average level of attention or competence that voters have. It really calls into question whether democracy, as we've always embraced it and know it, is still a valid model when people end up voting for things they don't even understand. I think it was Richard Dawkins when he was asked, are you going to vote for Brexit or not? He said, what do I know? I don't understand the issue. And why would you have a referendum on this? It's like having a referendum on whether quantum physics is correct or not. Yeah. Yeah, so too. Yeah. <laughs> what do you recommend organizations on how they can assess leaders or can assess their employees and overcoming these biases and instinctive or gut kind of decisions and not falling prey for, you know, charisma, confidence, but yeah. rather humility or integrity? Yeah, so, you know, so this is in a way where the glasses have full because while the world of... Uh, democracy and political elections or candidates is posing serious challenges, things are a lot easier in the corporate world or in the world of organizations. First of all, one can assume that the organization has appointed competent, data-driven, smart professionals who are experts in their fields. And within HR departments, you should have in large organizations, people who have 
a grounding in talent management, in assessment, in prediction, and who are uh, more evidence-based in what they do. So there is a high degree or a high level of competence. And mm-hmm. secondly, mostly you can see much easier the return on investment on appointing people who are either good or bad to these jobs, right? So good leaders create higher levels of engagement, morale, low levels of uh, turnover, and uh, high levels of profits and revenue. So the intention is there, the expertise is there, and here's where the science of organizational psychology provides a very clear recipe on how to do this. So first of all, focus on the right traits, focus on the qualities that make people better leaders, not ones that producers short-term. So instead of focusing on things like confidence, charisma, and narcissism, focus on competence, humility, and integrity. Secondly, distrust your instincts. You know, I absolutely agree with the fact that there's probably some people out there who are really good judges of character, but for every one of such individuals, there's probably a hundred who think they know potential when they see it and they know integrity when they see it, but they don't, you know? So just distrust your instincts and use data, use science-based assessments, use uh, data on the person's past performance, use 360s, etc. And thirdly, fundamentally, if your goal is to not just improve the quality of leaders, but actually help more women get to leadership roles, don't make it easier for competent women to get to the top, uh, make it harder for incompetent men to get to the top because they are currently occupying a lot of the quotas that should go to competent women. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Do you, in, in terms of what to assess, so you mentioned, you know, traits and competencies, is there anything else that you normally recommend organizations on what they should assess? So, and you gave examples of, you know, test traits mm-hmm. such as humility and integrity are there any other maybe personality traits or values or competencies and anything else that you advise them on this should be in your assessment period mm-hmm. yeah so first of all you know well i think although assessment prediction and selection are the most complex issues in talent management because they are very quantitative, scientific, and they combine both methodology and theory. At the end of the day, there are just two questions that you need to answer. What should I assess and how? What should I assess question, organizations tend to overcomplicate things. They all overestimate how unique they are and they come up with very long, extensive competency models. At the end of the day, all leaders will do better in general if they have more rather than less technical expertise, if they have more rather than less intelligence, and if they have more rather than less people skills and more rather than less integrity or honesty. And Mm. so how you evaluate these traits? Well, if you had to pick one method that gives you the most accurate reading of these competencies or traits, it will be psychometric assessments. You know, Mm. then you get to, well, which assessment should I use or what items or algorithms, etc. then it becomes more granular. And I think the only way to answer this question correctly is to benchmark your existing leaders and see what do high-performing leaders look like on these tools and what do poor-performing leaders look like in these tools. So you basically reverse engineer the problem and you look for the qualities that predict whether people are likely to succeed or not. It's never going to be 100% accurate. This is not rocket science. 
But if you can be right 70 or 75% of the time, there's huge benefits. There's mm. right to that. And mostly, you know, people operate on an almost 50-50 baseline rate because what they have is not very accurate. Yeah, absolutely. With regarding psychometric tests, because as psychologists, we all also know that a lot of human behavior is driven unconsciously and the answers people give even in psychometric tests might be flawed as well or biased as well. Have you what what's your point of the accuracy of psychometric tests and have you come across any other psychometric assessments other than the traditional questionnaires that might circumvent the biases in these as well? Yeah, and so this is a really, you know, we could have almost a whole podcast on this yeah. specific yeah. question because it's it's both a lot more complex and deeper than people think, and it's also a lot simpler. So let me just give you the simple answer, which is that, look, if you put a representative group of people uh, through an assessment in what we call high-stake conditions, so imagine that there are job applicants, and they have every intention in the world to lie, cheat, or at least present themselves in the most positive way, which is what you do also if you go to an interview or if you go on a first date, right? You won't say, excuse me, these are all my flaws. And actually, you know, you don't do that. You say, oh, I love working with others. Yeah, I am so enthusiastic. I always wanted to work here. So there's a fair amount of distortion in every aspect, in every methodology and in assessment as well. But if you look at the data of these people who are incentivized to get a job and to portray themselves in the best possible way, and their answers still correlate with future performance, then uh, I think the tool has utility. Mm. And you could then go engage. You here's where the complex side of that is like, okay, but what if they were not honest? Well. I don't think they're necessarily being honest when they're smiling at work or smiling with a customer or uh, putting on their best persona day to day in the office. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure that some of them might dislike their colleagues, their customers and be grumpy. But you know what? If the assessment results predict how people behave most of the time, that's good enough. Yeah, that's totally. Enough. And so interestingly, because you alluded to what about other methodologies, you know, we should explore other things like passive assessment, like implicit associations tests, like things. But so far, there is no evidence that these assessments work better. They have higher face validity. They seem like they should work better because they are, you know, subliminal and don't require people's awareness. But they don't. And there's so many other problems. For example, even if you look at the issue of bias, like you can complete an implicit associations test and it tells you that you're biased against females or males or whites or Chinese or old people. And what does that actually predict? What does it yeah. mean? If it's an implicit bias that is not manifested, is that really the real you? So yeah. basically we need to, we need to forget about the or at least kind of move on from this idea that assessments will capture the authentic you or the deep you or the real you because the real you is something that probably 10 years of psychotherapy are needed to discover and maybe, <laughs> maybe that's way too deep for most organizations 
Yeah, mm. totally. And I really like, I, I think it's so true to actually test the correlation between whatever tests your or companies are using with, with the future performance and to make that link. Exactly. That's, that's a really good point. Yeah. I think, I think the goal basically for any of these selection assessments is to very quickly after five, 10 or 20 minutes, provide a description of you that would correlate with the way people see you at work, you know, mm -hmm. so that if we show that description to them, they're like, yep, this is Jessica. Mm -hmm. Yep, this is my colleague. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So we also don't care about how Jessica sees herself because, you know, the way to predict that is very different. I just tell you wonderful things about you and then you'll be like, yeah, this is me. <laughs> it's different from saying, look, here are some flaws and here are some blind spots. Yeah. So I think if we, if we come back to the book, I'm interested in, in finding out. I, I've seen some of the feedback that you've received um, as a result of the book. And a lot of it has been on, you know, not just men are, are incompetent leaders, women are as well. What is your answer to these kind of, or what else is it that, that you've heard back? What's the feedback been and what is your response to that? Yeah, so, you know, there's been, so, yeah, I'm fortunate that the book has created or generated quite a bit of attention. I'm fully aware of the fact that a lot of this attention is driven by the title, you know, why do so many incompetent men become leaders? So mm -hmm. people react to it as a strong title that actually works as a sort of double-edged sword. Uh, sometimes the title, you know, if it's too strong, people don't even bother reading the book or actually engaging with the arg argument. And, mm -hmm. and the title itself has elicited a lot of views. So mostly I say people love or hate the book without reading it just because the title is almost like kind of a, an excuse to project whether they're fed up with incompetent leaders or incompetent men who rise to the top or whether they are actually fed up with attempts to help women get to the top. So, you know, it's polarizing. And in a way, the people who react to the title they're not changing their views or their minds, so they're just seeing it as an opportunity to express their views. With the people who have read it, I was quite pleased to see that um, there are two common reactions. One is, I think people are interested in kind of having a more mature or intellectually stimulating discussion on this issue of gender diversity. Like, yes, yeah, so we've heard that for some people it's about just quotas, for others about yeah, I mean, their, their glass ceiling is there and the politics of sexism are clear. But I think it's shifting the conversation to this idea that you could actually, if we truly had meritocratic systems in place, then we would automatically not just elevate the quality of our leaders, but actually elevate women to leadership roles. Because <laughs> what we have at the moment is not a meritocracy. And this is actually hard for those who are in the status quo to accept. Everyone has experienced men who, without realizing, tell you, oh, you know, for this position, oh, I wish I could had a, I, I wish I could appoint a woman, but there aren't any qualified ones. So, you know, I'm interviewing five men and I am appointing a man because, uh, you know, this is a meritocracy. And actually, they don't realize just how flawed their thinking and their bias mm -hmm. Uh, it. So that's the number one. And I think the second one is again, the people who read the book and understand, I mean, the main argument, it isn't really a book about gender, but it's a book about good leadership. And my fundamental kind of uh, hope with this 
is that we get better at appointing leaders and that we actually start to pay attention to the qualities that make people more effective as leaders. The gender issue is sort of a, a side theme, of course, is what people pay attention to because I think mostly because we are making progress around gender equality and mostly because I think things are changing. These changes are slower than they should be. But if you fell asleep in the 50s and woke up yesterday, you would see big changes. And how do you then feel about quotas, in particular for gender? Yeah, I feel like they are in an ideal world. So in this utopian world that I present as the correct solution, and I'm not naive enough to think that it will happen, but I, I still feel that I have the responsibility to say what should be done, even if it is ignored. So in an ideal world, you wouldn't need quotas because making environments, organizations, or systems meritocratic would result not just in more women in leadership roles, but more women than men in leadership roles. So if you had a meritocracy, you would ironically end up in a situation where you need quotas for men. It wouldn't be 80-20, but it would probably be 60-40 in favor of women. Because if you selected on the traits that actually make leaders more effective, things like empathy, people skills, EQ, self-awareness, humilities, women over-index in these traits compared to men. My second point on this is that, you know, the issue is not whether we should have quotas for women or not, but how about removing the quotas that are currently allocated to incompetent men? That is the big problem we have right now. And by the way, that hurts competent men too. There are so many men who would make great leaders, but they're overlooked precisely because they have these more feminine leadership characteristics or profile characteristics, such as empathy, humility, and even a modicum amount of self-doubt. I was speaking to a journalist a few weeks ago, a BBC journalist who told me, but who wants to follow a leader who says, I don't know? Mm. And I said, well, any rational person? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Important problems in life, you probably don't know the answer. Yeah. You have to so if, if our criterion for deciding to follow someone is the person who says, yeah, I know. So, you know, never in doubt, always wrong kind of thing. Then we're going to end up with a lot of you know, problematic uh, situations. So another question on, on feedback, actually. Um, have you heard anything from Sheryl Sandberg at all about feedback from on the book or the article, the original article that, that prompted the book? No, no, I haven't. And, you know, I mean, uh, hopefully at some point um, somebody will share either the article or the book. Maybe she has read them. Um, you know, I'm, I make it quite clear when the specific theme of leaning and Cheryl comes up that I think her advice is uh, well-meaning and well-intended. You know, mm -hmm. I think so it's just a little bit thin on evidence. It's based on her own personal experience. The cynical side of me could also interpret that as a little bit of self-serving because if you're saying, uh, look at me, all I did was to show my assertiveness and confidence and look how successful I am. It's probably not that simple. And there were probably other elements that helped her get to where she is. But the fundamental issue that I take with this well-intended piece of advice is that it ends up hurting women more than it helps because it doesn't make us reassess or 
critically evaluate how flawed our criteria are for selecting leaders. The fact that we continue to bet on confidence. So it's a little bit like saying, you know, I don't know, you want to select uh, people for a given job and you know that there is a specific trait, be it, let's say, height or age, that makes people more effective, but actually you're going for the exact opposite in your explicit things. And then you're blaming women for not being tall enough or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it has surprised me in in a pleasant way to see many readers or I think adherence to the lean in movement kind of get a little bit disenchanted with it, you know, even if it is because it's a little bit too simplistic to say, oh, you know, just improve your enhance your self-belief or your assertiveness and all your problems will be solved. Well, if only that was the case. And also, I think it misses the point when it comes to there are certain things that help the individual advance their career. And there are certain things that actually help others. So, you know, I'm sure that there are women out there whose careers are uh, not as successful as they could be because they're not able to bullshit their way up, if you're part of my French, right? So because Mm -hmm. they're a little bit modest or too humble and modest for their own sake. If I'm coaching those women or individuals, because they could be men, maybe it is the right thing to actually, you know, have a Tony Robbins approach to this and help them be kick-ass and brag about themselves and self-promote. But let's not fool ourselves. That's not going to improve the quality of our leaders. And actually, it's fundamentally perpetuating the problem, which is that what we want is to have a world in which people who self-promote or bullshit their way up succeed. Mm. Why then do we end up lamenting that, oh, we don't have humble or ethical leaders? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, very interesting. It will be really interesting to hear actually you and Sho debate this topic at some point. Actually, I, I, I would yeah. be delighted to receive an invitation to that uh, event or debate. Yeah, I am very conscious of time. So I want to move on to our final three, which is how we end every single episode. So we kind of leave psychology behind and, and go somewhere else. So there's three questions to go. First one for you is, given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest? Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, I will go with Angela Merkel because, you know, as you know, I write about her in my book. I see her as by far the best performing and most talented current political leader in the world. And I'm also very curious about what she's going to do next and uh, uh, what her experience has been as, you know, one of the best leaders of the past couple of decades or so. Okay. Interesting. And um, the next one is how do you define happiness? I think I define it mostly around expectation. You know, I think is uh, the expectation and anticipation of great things. So when you're really, really looking forward to something and uh, it's a sort of preface to that happening, I think once it's happened, what once it is occurring, once you're in the present moment of it, it very quickly loses some of its potency or power. So yeah, I think it's the anticipation of great things, the excitement and joy that precede the arrival of something that you really want. 
And final question, then we kind of say goodbye. What scares you are very generally? I used to be as a child, you know, I had a long lasting kind of phobia that uh, when I'm on a plane, on a flight, the plane, we would have a crash, it would fall down on the ocean and I would be eaten. <laughs> by the oh my gosh, which that many, sounds... Which many, uh, not just marine zoologists, but engineers and uh, rational people kept telling me it's technically impossible and you probably <laughs> die first. Weirdly, I wasn't afraid of dying, but it's just maybe I saw Jaws too early in my life. And uh, <laughs> so that no longer scares me, which is good. You know, I kind of, uh, after some time, I moved beyond or over that kind of fear. I am sometimes, I don't know if scared, but generally worried by, you know, the kind of a short-term prospects that humanity faces mm. in the light of, uh, you know, we've now lived in probably 20 or 30 years of relative peace in the world. 30, if you think, I think, after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall 30 years ago and the end of the Cold War. Mm. But if you, if you open the news on any day today, you can't help but seeing lots of different risks kind of... Uh, growing, you know, uh, whether yeah. it's climate change or prospect of conflict in Asia, crazy, wacky leaders, presidents. So mm. really finishing on a very happy and optimistic note now with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that's basically, you know, if you, once you get to a stage, especially in, in you have kids, you're like, oh, is it really responsible to bring people into this world? And you look at their ignorance at a very young age and how that goes back to the, your question on happiness, how maybe you need to have a high degree of ignorance to be happy or not read the papers and listen to the news, etc. because things aren't looking very, very good, I think. But hopefully I'm wrong and hopefully humanity has the, you know, humans have the capacity to uh, overcome their dark side tendencies. And, yeah. and maybe to final question, what makes you optimistic that this might happen? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure how optimistic I am, but, <laughs> but I think that uh, recently I read Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. And even though I am dispositionally a pessimist, it has turned me into a more optimistic person on this issue. So it certainly is the best compendium or book on data-driven optimism that I can think of recommending. So maybe to your audience, you know, they should check out Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. And, you know, I think he makes the case quite compellingly that uh, we shouldn't worry too much, that uh, we've been in bad situations before, and uh, we certainly have the capacity and the tools to correct some of the worrying paths that uh, we seem mm. to be doing right now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank well, you so a much, Tomas. Yes, thank okay. you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Thank yeah, you thank you. Yes, Very inspiring. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Business Psychology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our discussion today. Join us next time with a brand new topic. Please tune in then.